Let's open up to the book of Amos. If you get to Daniel, just keep going. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. There's a song that we sing with Mary Emmeline. I'm not going to sing it out loud, but it's a good one. It'll help you memorize the Old Testament books if you want to listen to Rebecca sing it. She'll sing it well to you, uh, and you'll get the good tune, and you won't be able to forget the books after you hear the song. Okay. No, no, they're, they're out with the neighbors. Hoodlums. <laughs> That's okay. Isaac probably would have been making so much noise at this point when I started talking that they would have had to exit stage right anyway. Okay. Book of Amos is before us. Uh, let's go over a little bit of where we are. So uh, some of you may have been thinking that I was going to just start going through the prophets since we did all the wisdom literature after we did the chronology and then I started with Isaiah right so we're just thinking we're going to go through no I tricked you uh, I actually did Isaiah on purpose it's the first one there I think perhaps purposefully so for two reasons I think the first reason is that Isaiah reveals to us uh, um, some very wonderful truths about Jesus and so when you go to the prophets you think man Isaiah because there's a lot of messianic prophecy that's very overt, right? I think there's another reason, too, though, that in the English translation we see Isaiah there, uh, and, and it's because it covers almost all of the history. It starts when Judah and Israel, remember those kingdoms split, right? Uh, when uh, David uh, uh, died, Solomon ascends, and then when he dies, you know, the kingdom was wonderful and prosperous and expanding. Solomon dies, and then there's a split, right? That's where things start to go downhill. We get the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so when, uh, when Isaiah enters into the scene, both Judah and Israel are still there. Uh, they are experiencing times of prosperity, but trial is coming. We see all of that happen in the book of Isaiah. We see uh, the fall the kingdom of Israel. We see the foreshadowing and portent, the, the incoming of Babylon, that great exile, that great destruction, that great judgment of God on his people. We see that as well in Isaiah. All of history is covered there, either in Isaiah's time frame as he's living and breathing or as he's prophesying. Uh, and we recognize that. So Amos uh, comes into the scene uh, kind of alongside of Isaiah within the time frame, within the chronology. And so he's being called, he's a shepherd and a tender of figs or something like that. What is it, Larry? You know it, don't you? Sycamore trees, that's right. So, so Amos finds himself, he, he says it himself in the book. You can read it and find it. He says, listen, I'm no prophet. But I need to tell you something that God's told me, so I guess I am a prophet. And so he's called to go to Israel, to the northern kingdom. And so what we're going to do, uh, starting with Amos, is we're going to cover some of those prophets called to the northern kingdom while the northern kingdom still existed, before it was destroyed. Amos, let's see. I have the time period here. It's, it's where we are. It's the early 8th century B.C., so kind of like 745 B.C. 
just so we can get these dates in our mind a little bit more. And I'll keep saying them as we're talking through the prophets. Kind of early 700s, um, uh, 720, 715 is when uh, Israel is gone. It's when it's destroyed uh, by Assyria. So uh, we're, we're kind of nearing the end of Israel, Judah, of course, not long after. And we'll get there as we hit some of these prophets as we go in chronological order. So we started with Isaiah so we could get a, a swath of what the prophets are doing, which is revealing Jesus Christ. We see it kind of first and foremost within Isaiah, but also we got Isaiah, within Isaiah a marching order uh, of time, uh, where we are and where we're going. And so now we're going to start to plug in and see uh, what it is that God is seeking to reveal to his people as we're moving through this integral moment in God's people's lives, this judgment moment for their own sins because they haven't been listening to him. Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa, called to the people of Israel. So uh, we see this here, and you see the theme on your handout. I hope you've already read it, but uh, we see here that God's righteousness, and then in parentheses, and that's on purpose, God's righteousness and mercy is displayed in the judgment and preservation of his wayward people. When you read the book of Amos, or even when you see just a splattering of the texts that we'll read tonight together, it is quite obvious that this is a book of judgment. God is judging his people. That's something we're going to have to address tonight. It's something that we're going to have to address as we continue forward in what some people call the minor prophets, but really it's just more prophets that have a shorter length of writing. It's not that they are lesser in any way. God's righteousness and mercy is displayed in the judgment and preservation of his people. Let's start tonight with prayer, and then we'll do what we always do. We'll look at the bookends of this text. It's shorter, just nine chapters, but as with all the books of the Bible, and I hope you're starting to realize this, when you start with the beginning and you read the end, you can get a pretty fair understanding of what in the world's going on within the contents of the book. And it's, uh, uh, it's the same for Amos, and I'm telling you, it will be of great benefit to you as you study other books of the Bible. I hope that's becoming ingrained in us as we, week in and week out, are doing such things. But let's pray first, and we'll look at these bookends to begin our journey in Amos. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you again, thankful for your word. Lord, even on a night like this where... Some say Halloween, some jokingly say Reformation Day, but Lord, we do remember this day uh, as an integral moment in church history where, Father, indeed, by your Holy Spirit, in your providence, and in your sovereignty, the Word of God, capital T, Truth, regained a footing and a standing within the church. And Lord, how triumphant. It was and continues to be. And so, God, we pray that we might hold fast to those principles. We might look to your word. We might see Jesus Christ and that we might see that he alone saves and that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone. God, continue to be with us and may we glorify you only. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, that, by the way, in that prayer is mentioned of the Reformation. You know, in the Reformation, you know, associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. You know, the Reformation, sometimes people say, hey, are you Reformed? You go to Reformed Church? I wish that they would say I go to a Bible church because the Reformation was trying to go back to the sources. And what was the source? The source was God's Word. The Bible. I go to a Bible church. Uh, we believe in God's word in its entirety. We believe that what he has here for us is very good, the salvation of souls. And so uh, remember that tonight. Remember it always, but it's, it's nice. I, I think sometimes people overdo Reformation Day. They try to honor, say, Martin Luther or John Calvin or some of the other reformers. You know, honestly, I think those reformers would be quite upset if their name was used more than the Lord Jesus Christ, or if their name was used more uh, than God or something like that. Uh, uh, quite, quite awkward, I think, for the reformers to kind of have their names almost venerated, which is something that they absolutely detested in their time. So we will hold true to the reformers' desire and look at Amos as if it were just another night. So uh, we come to the bookends, chapter 1 and chapter 2. We start off hot, out of the box. The Lord roars from Zion, it's chapter 1, verse 2, utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. We go down to verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. We go say to verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke. Thus says the Lord in verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, and it goes on and on. We see this over and over, for three transgressions and for four. And it culminates, because if you're looking, and if you, of course, have memorized your Bible geography, your Bible map in your book or in your Sunday school class, you'd realize these are enemies, or uh, maybe enemies might be too strong of a word in some of these cases, but these are people who are going against God. And if you're in Israel or if you're in Judah, you're reading the first chapter. You say, that's right, for three transgressions and for four. Get them, Lord. They have been coming after us. They have been, for instance, in verse 13, ripping open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Heinous sin against the people, heinous injustice. So you're reading chapter 1 and you're agreeing, yes, Lord, get them. You read chapter 2 and you see Moab and you say, that's a little closer, but they are our enemies. Get them too, Lord. Then you read in verse 4, that says the Lord, this is chapter 2, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke. The punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked, so I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, remember where we are right now. 
geographically. We're in Israel, the northern kingdom. Judah's to the south. That's where Amos is kind of from. He's down there. But he's been called up to Israel, and so he's prophesying. So you're looking at all the enemies, and the Israelites are saying, that's right. They hear Judah, and they say, that's right too. That's why we're here. We're Israel. We're the people of God. Get them too, Lord. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. What's happening here is God planting his flag and saying this, I am God, and all that are before me are unrighteous. This is the sovereignty of the Lord being put on full display. I am the Lord. I look over these enemies of myself those who are opposed to me, those who worship other gods, and I will judge them. I look upon my people, the people I made a promise with, the people I made a promise with consequences, <laughs> and they are in a state of disbelief, and I will judge them. This is where we start. It is harrowing. The sovereignty of God is frightening apart from Jesus Christ. You know, as we look at the book of Amos, one question that we're going to need to keep coming back to is how can we see Jesus in all of Amos? This comes up in other prophets too. It'll be very easy for us to see as we go in a moment to the, the second part, the next bookend, the end. It's quite beautiful. But we need to keep this question in the back of our mind. We'll come back to it. Just be thinking of that. How can we see Jesus here? What does this mean for us as the people of God for three transgressions and for four? And by the way, Larry asked this. I, I almost forgot, Larry. I answered him, but I told him I'd tell him twice so he can remember. But everyone else is going to hear it for the first time. For three transgressions, that means uh, three is a strong word in Israel because on the basis of two or three witnesses, Shall you be judged? That's within their law. And so you see this in the New Testament as well. For instance, Peter denying the Lord three times. And then what did Peter do? I mean, what did Jesus do uh, on the riverbank there after they had fished on the sea bank? Uh, after they had caught all the fish, came back in. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three holies. Not just holy, not just very holy, the very most 
of holies. Holy, holy, holy. You, you'll see this repeat of three as we go through scripture. And so here, it's very unsurprising. and would have been not confusing at all. You know, we see it and we're like, is he, is this some kind of poetry? Or, you know, it, it can be a hindrance to us. But for three transgressions and for four, that means three, you're, you're sinning. No doubt about it. You are caught and found guilty. The verdict is in. Guilty. And for four, very guilty. Very, very guilty for three transgressions of Israel and for four. So uh, this is where we start. Judgment. Let's go to Amos 9. Amos chapter 9. This bookend is a little smaller. Amos chapter 9. We come out of the box hot in chapters 1 and 2. Serious judgment. Amos chapter 9. Let's start at verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. Talking about Israel. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. He's talking about obliteration. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Now, remember, the house of Jacob is God's people. Who are we talking to? We're talking to God's people. For behold, this is verse 9, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. He's talking to the prideful. What's God saying? We're so prosperous, no one can get us. That's who he's speaking to now, those who are in hard-hearted states, those who are unbelieving. Verse 11, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities And inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. Says the Lord your God. Beautiful. This is God's sovereignty too though. God is choosing to maintain his people, because that's what he promised. He's been promising it. We've been through some of those covenants. For instance, with Abraham, through you all the nations shall be blessed. You will have someone always, because your family's going to be more than all the stars in the sky, all the sand here. You're going to have more than all that. Believe it. Abraham did. It's counted to him as righteousness. Uh, It was faith that was given to him, by the way. Uh, We have a promise that's given to Noah. I'll never destroy you totally again. He puts the rainbow over the sky, right? Every time you see that rainbow, remember, I'll never send the flood like that again. Uh, We have that promise to David. You'll always have somebody on the throne. 
always. The throne shall never be vacant. You will always have someone, David. What does he say in verse 11? And that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. He's still there. He will be repaired. God is choosing within his sovereignty to protect and to keep and to preserve his people. These are the bookends. We start in intense judgment for disbelief. We see it in the world and worse, we see it in God's people. It culminates, as it were, in Israel. Amos being called to Israel. But then at the end, we see there is good news for those who will listen, for those who have ears to hear, those who have eyes to see. They will be preserved by God. In fact, verse 15, God himself will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. Finality. Finality. Now, we need to see how it is we can see Jesus in the in-between. How can we see Jesus in all of Amos? What do y'all think about judgment? Do y'all think about judgment at all? Any thoughts? Judgment. God's judgment, not our judgment. Y'all think about the judgment day? You think about God judging people? Anybody ever thought through those things? I hope so. Any thoughts? We don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to fear. Why? Because we are redeemed. We are redeemed. Other thoughts? <coughs> Judgment. It's something that we'll all face. You're right about that. That's a good thought. What else? It does glorify God. How? Well, he's holy and he, um, he does not allow sin in his presence. He doesn't That's right. allow any uh, rebellion in his presence. Certainly. We're redeemed, so we have nothing to fear. Everyone will be judged. We're redeemed. Everyone will be judged. He does not allow sin in his presence. What else? He will be vindicated. What he said will happen. Certainly. Anybody else? I just want your thoughts. I'm not trying to fish for anything particular. It's okay if you don't want to say anything either. Those are good thoughts. This is where we need to go when we're looking at a book like Amos, when we're looking at other prophets, when we're looking at the words from Jesus, actually. You know, Jesus speaks of condemnation much more than all of the Old Testament prophets. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you familiar with that phrase? It's Jesus' words. He's the one who's talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth. People sometimes like to think that Jesus doesn't speak of such things. So what in the world do we do with this concept of judgment? It can be offensive. I'm surprised no one said, I, you know, it seems a little, little risky, right? Seems a little tricky to maybe bring that topic up. You know, we're, we're in kind of a safe space, you know, Wednesday night, Bible study, Bible believers, right? Reformed. We're okay with some of these things, at least 
Maybe as the preacher's talking about it. You know, I bring this up to maybe some Joe Schmo on the road. They say, listen, who are you? I don't, you don't need to be judging me. You don't need to be talking to me about that. You know, it, it can be a little risky, right? Judgment. Everybody's going to come before the judgment throne. Whoa, what do you mean? But we have nothing to fear. How's that work? You know, this is the gospel of Jesus, by the way, that we're talking about. It fit, right? I hope y'all heard it as we were going around. I don't even think these elders planned it, right? I didn't even plant these elders here to say those things. But, you know, we have nothing to fear because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. That's why we don't have anything to fear. God already meted out the justice onto Jesus, okay? All the wrath of God satisfied on that day, okay? Uh, Everyone's coming before the throne, When we come, we will be judged. When we are judged, we will be found innocent because of the blood of Jesus. God, of course, this is needed because sin can't come into the presence of God. I think in the quarterly, was it the quarterly uh, Uzzah touched the ark and died? Sin can't come before the presence of God. Uzzah, he's a pretty cool dude. When he comes before the ark of God, he's a sinner. And if he doesn't have a mediator, he's dead. Right? That was in the quarterly, wasn't it? For those of you who are doing that. The unadulterated righteousness of God is offensive to sinful humanity. When we're not putting God in his place, and when we are not putting ourselves, that is humanity, in our place. As God redeems his people, as we confess the Lord Jesus Christ, we're confessing that we need a savior. That's inherent within the confession. What do I need? I need a savior. I need Jesus. Why? Because without him, I'm going to be judged and found guilty. With him, I'm still going to be judged, but he took my sin away. And he continues to do so. The wrath of God is satisfied. That's the gospel. And so when we look here and we come to these pages of Amos, and we see God's sovereignty, his his righteousness, as it were, unclothed. And he, he's revealing himself and his righteous, sovereign reign over the world of disbelief. There is nothing but judgment that can happen. For us to be offended is for us to fall into the same sin that Israel and Judah are falling into, which is pride. Let's look at a few verses. see here you notice in chapter two this is just by inference with israel what is god saying you know i read it right it was i who did this it was i who did this it was i who did this verse 11 after all of that he says is it not indeed so what is he implying that the people of israel are saying no we did that we did that chapter five we'll look here Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel, fallen, no more to rise as the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of the Lord. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. 
For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteous to the earth, who made Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day and the night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. God is saying, I do this. Verse 9, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress? They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone but you won't dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink them. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. He goes on and on. Chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He goes on to speak of how they should be living. Can you begin to feel what God is indicting, what he's bringing against the Israelites and what he's bringing against Judah? Let's look at chapter 6, verse 5. We'll start in verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. What's happening within the book of Amos is an indictment against pride. They're in a time of prosperity. They're in a time of unreliance. On God. And man, what danger is what God's saying. They're asking for the day of the Lord. Oh, may the day come. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what we say, right? We need to be careful when we say it if we do not believe. Because it will be frightening, like he mentions here. It'll be like if I saw a bear and I turned to run and there's a lion, right? That's what he's saying. Careful what you're asking for if you do not believe. We have nothing to fear if we do. Over and over and over in the book of Amos, Amos is crying out to the people of Israel, God, because Amos is just a shepherd, right? Telling them what God is saying. Thus declares the Lord, God is crying out to the people, listen to me, listen and turn, listen, but some won't. Some won't. Chapter 8, verse 11, and then we'll wrap it up. Behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. This isn't the last time we'll hear something like this. Famine of the word. We'll hear it, for instance, in Romans chapter 1. Everybody likes the book of Romans. It's a wonderful book of the Bible. If you haven't read it, you should. Uh, within Romans chapter 1, we see a frightening verse. If you sin and you continue to sin, the Lord will give you over to those sins. That's what's happening here. If you sin and you continue to sin, there will be a famine on the land. Not of bread, not of water, nothing like that. Worse, hearing the words of the Lord, my presence will be removed from you, but that's my special presence because I am God. Remember chapters 1 and 2. I am here. And I am here to stay because I am God and you are my people. Know who I am. Know who you are. And then know what I am saying to you. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. That's what he's saying. When you read the book of Amos, if you don't hear the listen to me's, you're missing it. We can sometimes freak out about the judgment. That's what I was trying to get at with judgment. Yeah. We can kind of freak out about it, right? And it tunnels us into judgment. Oh, God is just a judge, a judging God. So unfair. How are we supposed to do this? How can God be the judge? This doesn't make any sense. How can he send people this way? What is God doing? Careful. What's happening in the book of Amos is placement. God is God. We are creatures. But that's not the end of the story. God keeps asking his creatures to listen. Listen to me. You are going astray. Listen. You'll see it throughout. The Lord declares, and you did not listen. I even sent, he says this, um, let's see. I'm going to miss it just because I'm looking for it, like usual. Chapter 7. I'm not going to be able to find it, but I'll tell you, and you can read the book, and you can find it. God said, didn't I send uh, uh, a clean teeth? Clean teeth meaning I haven't eaten any food today, right? That, that's what that means. Didn't I send you clean teeth? Didn't I send you uh, a, a drought? Didn't I send you all that, all that famine of the land? Didn't I send you all this? Didn't I do all of this hardship that you might listen? Listen, listen. But they won't. Israel will be destroyed. Amos is prophesying that. Chapter 4, verse 6. You found it, Mike. I knew. With diligence, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your circles. This is chapter 4, verse 6. And lack of bread in all your places. Yet you didn't return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I will send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field would have rain. The field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. The end of verse 9. Yet you did not return to me. The end of verse 10. Yet you did not return to me. Verse 11 at the end. Yet you did not return to me. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. We'll all meet him. Who, who said it? You, we're coming before the throne. We'll meet him. 
prepare to meet your God. But here's the point. This justice, this meted out righteousness, this unadulterated righteousness that's causing judgment on the nation of Israel because it's going to be destroyed. Assyria is coming and great will be the destruction. It will be much worse than the Holocaust. Everyone likes to talk about the Holocaust. We need to talk about Assyria and the ravaging of the nation because it was much more severe. It was entirely heinous. What do we do with this? We see God for who he is. We see our own sin and we listen. We must listen because God is crying out over and over. And even with the destruction of Israel, what does he say at the end? Continue to listen to me. Verse 8 of chapter 9. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon this sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. But that's not the end of the verse. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house among all the nations as one shakes with the sea. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who are saying, by the way, pridefully, disaster will never come. Verse 11, this is the last word. And that day I will raise up the booth. And listen to these words. I will repair, I will raise, I will rebuild. See that in verse 11? Repair, raise, and rebuild. Verse 12, you see it in the solid rock verses on your handout? You know, where do you see it? You, you, chapter 9, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. It's incredible to see. Chapter 12, that you may possess the remnant. All the nations who are called by my name. God is coming and there will be people coming from all over the place. We see that in Acts, by the way. Chapter 13, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when plowmen shall overtake the reaper. In other words, it's going to be so fruitful, so wonderful. The treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. There's so much fruit going on here. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. All the hills shall flow with it. You're bathing in this beautiful and wonderful blessing. Chapter 14, I'll restore the fortunes. They'll get their cities back. They'll get their gardens and they'll eat it. Verse 15, that's the coup de grace. I'll plant them there. No one will get them. It's a forever verse. I'll plant them there. They shall never again be uprooted. This is the gospel and this is Jesus within it. We see Jesus in the judgment because we need Jesus because of the judgment. God bless us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the book of Amos. Thank you that we see in Amos that God's righteous, your righteousness and your mercy are displayed in the judgment and the preservation of your wayward people. God, help us to remember such things. Help us to see your judgment for what it is. Help us to see your righteousness for what it is. And help us to see your extended arm of grace through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for what it is. The good news that we need, that we desperately need, and that you provide for us. May we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. We got a few minutes. What questions do y'all got? Or are you going to go trick-or-treating now? Yes. Yeah. A famine of the word? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we got to be careful and kind of how we say it, 
But I, I would say generally there is indeed a famine of the word, especially within our culture, uh, where we embody many of these sins and this pride. You know, it, there's a lot of sins, injustice, um, treading on the poor. You know, there, there's a lot in Amos that's very particular, but it stems from this one endemic cancer of a sin, and it's pride. We are seeking to put ourselves in the place of God, and when we do that, we close our ears to God, because why would we listen to somebody that we're better than? And so, you know, when we see a famine of the word, it's not necessarily like, and everyone's talking and you can't hear, you know? It's a moment where everyone turns away. They no longer care about God's word. And if you look around, uh, not a lot of people care about God's word where we are. Uh, even, and, and here's the point that I think makes what you said very important. Even in some of the quote-unquote churches of our day, uh, when you go into when you go into another church, you know, David Setzer, myself, Jim Barker, those who have been at Centennial, those who are at our other ARP churches are proclaiming God's word. If you go to a different church, I don't know if any of you, you know, maybe have attended a different church when you're out of town or something like that. It's a harrowing experience. Uh, you can come across some things that are not only unbiblical, but are so opposite to scripture that you wonder why in the world are they even calling this a Christian church? Uh, but it's more commonplace than you might think. It's very frightening. Uh, and so are we in a famine of the word? We need to be careful how we say it, you know, because there is some connotation here of extreme judgment. But yes, I would say generally we are. Anything else? Yeah. That's right. So what, you know, Bill's talking about chaplaincy, particularly in the military and the difficulty that you come across as a Christian chaplain, yeah, you know, a chaplain is seeking to share the gospel, you know, gospel of comfort, you know, of Fun fact about myself, I, I sought desperately to become a chaplain at some of the hospitals around town, uh, but I can't do it. They kicked me out. <laughs> uh, just won't let me do it. So I don't know if I got in trouble or what it is, but, uh, you know, you can't share God's word. Uh, you get in trouble. <laughs> they didn't like me. <laughs> it's tricky. You got to be careful. But when you start to notice it, you'll notice it. It's frightening. Where? Every hospital you can think of in town. You can, give, you can give a Bible, but you need to be careful how you counsel. I don't know. They wouldn't let me be one. I couldn't even take the class in seminary. There's a training class in seminary. But let me do it. I had to drop the class. Too overt. You know, you got to be careful with what, what you share and when, is what they said. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you might be able to kind of get away with more generalities. It's like high school football games now. You know, some in the South, we still pray in the name of Jesus, but usually it's something a little more general. You know, may, may he bless us. Amen. Something like that. You'll hear it. Listen for it. You know, as far as the chaplains are concerned, it's not the normal chain of command that forbids it. It's actually the chaplaincy corps. Those, those, hmm. those are at the head of it. And, yeah. you know, that's the frightening part. These yeah. folks can be 
That's right. Religious people. And they're the ones that put the constraints. That's right. And we've got, you know, for y'all's information, you know, we've got chaplains in our presbytery who are seeking to hold the line, as it were, you know. And it, when you speak with them, oh, it's, you know, to see kind of uh, you know, some of the awkwardness and difficulty that they come across. I do not envy their positions. I'm thankful for men like that, but man, it's, I, I think, you know, Rick, you probably come across some of our chaplains a little more than others in our presbytery, but, you know, I bet you they share things like that. Well, that, yeah, but I, I, I've asked that question before, and they seem to say they're allowed to pray however they want. That's right. That's right, and, and you know, and, and it sometimes, here's the tricky part about some of these institutions outside of the church. You know, you get somebody who says, oh, I'm fine with that. And you get somebody else the next day who says, oh, I'm not okay with that, you know. And so, you know, when we're talking about a principle like the famine of the word, really I think, you know, it's, it's are we founding our lives? Are we seeking to put God where he is, put ourselves where we are? That's where it becomes quite obvious, you know. Um, there's always going to be opportunities for us to be able to share the gospel within these what I would consider, even these parachurch institutions, chaplaincy and things like that, I would consider them at this point secular institutions with some believers in them uh, is probably how I would define it. Um, you know. Certainly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, it, it's... It's remarkable to see some of these denominations that held fast, you know, in the early 1900s have, you know, truly experienced it, I, I, what I believe would be a true famine of the word and have now gone so far uh, that there is no recovering. Um, uh, they, they are gone. My father-in-law, he particularly laments this. Uh, it, it grieves him to no end and convicts me because I feel like we should all lament that way when we think of sister denomination, you know, large fellowships. You know, imagine if the ARP suddenly ceased to be a denomination founded on God's word. Oh, it, it would grieve us. You know, we should be grieved like that for our, our brothers and sisters who struggle through these things uh, right next door. That situation in my family. That's right. Yeah. It's, clo it's always closer to home than we think. 